Well, good morning, Life Fellowship. It's good to see you today. My name is Dan. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. You know, if you, if you ever get a chance, I, I, I'd urge you to do this. Uh, get to church a few minutes early. I say that anyway. But, you know, you're really missing some cool things if you, if you just come in at the very last moment because there's so many great things going on on campus. You know, uh, whether, you, whether you drop your kids off at the, at the uh, Kid Life Wing, you, you know, you ought to meet some of our workers over there, some of our volunteers. Some of these folks have been over there. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're just... And some of you are in here and you'll be there next hour. But, you know, I, I, I go in there and uh, we have university professors, we have business owners, we have school teachers. We've got all kinds of wonderful people who minister in there. And, and by the way, even if you don't have kids, just say thanks for serving, all right? Because they're such a blessing. And, and you know, I, as I walked in the office this morning, we got all of our, our, our uh, folks that are working with the technology and, and working with the, the worship team. And they've been here since 6 o'clock this morning. I, I, I walked over into the Life University area. we got some Life University classes. That are, that are starting now. We've got a, a year-long Bible study that you can drop in and out of. That, that I, if, if you feel like you don't know the Bible yet, you ought, to, you ought to enroll in that class. It'll be awesome for you. Mark Porter, by the way, is going to start one that oh, I highly recommend. It's called Experiencing God. And uh, how many of you have taken Experiencing God at some point in your past? Quite a few of you. So you give testimony to that. Tell, tell others about it. But it's about a 12-week course where you're going to get to kind of talk about what we're talking about this morning in this passage. And I'd really urge you to take that. Uh, we're working on getting um, a new financial piece a university class started uh, that, that uh, uh, Alan Morgan's going to be teaching. So th- those are going on. Communion de Vida. Oh, man, the Lord is really blessing that church. He had 80 some odd a few weeks ago. Uh, that, that church just exploding. We're, we're, we're worried about where we're going to, they're going to have to go to double services or something because the room they're in isn't uh, capable of holding much more than they're, they're holding right now. By the way, if you see, see folks coming in and out for that. Go up and speak to them. Many of them are bilingual, but they're from you know, their first generation to this country. But never be afraid to go up and stick your hand out and say, man, we're glad you're here. We love Communion Vida. And uh, if they don't understand you, just nod and they'll nod and it'll still be good. All right. But the worst thing that could happen is if you just kind of like walk by each other uncomfortably. So, so I hope, hope you'll do that. Uh, you know, I just I was looking in the lobby this morning and and uh, and uh, seeing the baby bottle boomerang and uh, what a, what a great ministry that is. We've got folks in our church who volunteer up there all throughout the week. So just good things going on. I, I want to encourage you. I hope you're enjoying the 21 days of prayer emphasis. Hope you're reading Dave Early's book. Uh, I've known Dave for years. Um, Dave is a professor at Liberty University. Um, I think many of you know that that I also um, uh, have a position at Liberty that I've had for uh, almost 20 years now. And um, one of my jobs is I supervise a team of faculty in the graduate school uh, of divinity. And Dave is one of those faculty members. Uh, Dave has written probably 40 books. Dave has started churches from Las Vegas to Ohio to Virginia. Uh, He's an amazing man of God. And as I was reading his book this week, I was just like, how blessed we are to be able to to, to join literally hundreds and hundreds of churches all around the world who are doing this same thing at this same time. And I hope next week, as on Sunday, as we come together, kind of as a conclusion that you've made your plan to do that. I know that little, that little uh, code went by really quickly. Uh, we're actually, we have that on our social media. So if you're going to come next Sunday night, would you let us know that you're going to come? And if you say, I don't know how to do the code thing, then send us an email or give us a call at the switchboard. Just let us know. I'm in charge of food, so I'm a nervous wreck. Uh, you know, I'm going to make sure we have enough, but I also don't want to be feeding the staff for three weeks and leftovers. So if you would, if you'd let us know you're coming, uh, it's on social media. I think we're probably going to send out an email with 
with it. But do plan on being here. And in fact, I want you to know this. The cafe is not going to be open next Sunday. And you say, well, I've never fasted before. And I want you to understand, I would challenge you to do that beginning on Saturday night. And then we'll break our fast together, first with communion and then with the fellowship right afterwards. So it'll be a time where you can kind of gather and get to know each other, enjoy. You know, it's not going to be fancy food. We don't have the facilities to do a, you know, a buffet. But it'll, it'll be something to break your fast with, which is the idea, and, and, uh, and, and get to know folks and to just enjoy being part of the body. And, and you may say, well, you know, I'm, I'm diabetic. I, I, I can't do the fasting thing. And I'm diabetic too, so I got it. Uh, so what you do is you fast from something in particular. And I would say fast from something you really, really enjoy. Uh, anybody that knows me knows that uh, I have a little problem with Diet Pepsi, all right? So um, I won't be doing diet, uh, other things too, but I, that's something that I really enjoy. I won't be, won't be doing. So uh, it may be social media or television or you know, something along that line that you, that you fast from. But the principle of fasting is that you put yourself in a position that every time you want to reach for this thing or go for this, that instead you think, no, I'm not, and here's why. And when, when you do that, then that's your opportunity to pray. And it refocuses us and it disciplines us. Because you've got to ask yourself, what's more important, my commitment during this, this period or, or getting what I want? So it's a good, healthy thing uh, in general, but it's really great when we do it for spiritual reasons. So looking forward to that. Great to see you this morning. Today, we're, we're two-thirds of our way through our 21 days of prayer, and we're now in Isaiah chapter 6. Our songs this morning were built around this. We entered in our minds and our hearts through worship, the throne room of God. We lifted up his name. We declared him holy. We, we, we announced our submission to him by seeing him high and lifted up. And, and as we look at this passage that Steve read to us this morning, um, I, I hope you kind of got an idea of our theme for today, which is, is this. How are you and I going to respond when God gives us an invitation? When God speaks, when God declares a need, when God offers us a challenge, what will be our posture? What will be our response? What will we do in light of his request? I'm asked many, many times, Dan, how did you get in the ministry? I mean, seriously, how does that happen? You were, you were a country kid in, in Missouri, and, and, and next thing you know, you're pastoring in Palm Beach. How did that happen? And, and many times, if it's a young person asking that, they'll, they'll say, did God wake you up in the middle of the night? Uh, did, uh, did you see a vision? Uh, did something spectacular happen? And, and I will tell you that my call into ministry and every, everybody's journey is different, and I get that. And one of, the, one of the worst things we can, almost said stupidest, but we'll just go with worst. One of the worst things we can do is assume that, that, that everybody's going to be play, everybody's life's going to play out the same way. Uh, God's, going to, God's going to speak to you uniquely, and, and, and God is going to lead you and direct your path uniquely. And rather than to spend a lot of time saying, well, I want, and that guy, and then he did this, and no, 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 just focus on God and he'll direct you. So, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. Church was my community. Um, I, 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 you know, we went in our, in those days, you had a Sunday school that was before church. Then you had your Sunday morning service. And then you had Sunday night 
If you were a Southern Baptist and you were a teenager, you went to something, uh, what was it called? It was a, no, that, uh, that was independent Baptist usually, I don't want to, but there's Royal, Royal Rangers was Pentecostal, I think. Training union, but that was for adults. There was one for kids. Let's all participate. <laughs> Come on, I know some of you people are Southern Baptists. Got to admit it, right? I wasn't, but uh, all my Southern Baptist friends came. What's it called? Royal Ambassadors. Thank you. I knew you were some Southern Baptist out there somewhere. All right. So Royal Ambassadors uh, uh, were, 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 were young ambassadors, Royal, Royal Rangers. We all had it, okay? It's just a program. And then you went to Sunday night church. But if you thought you were done for the week, you were sadly mistaken. Because Wednesday night you had prayer and Bible study. And, and, and by prayer and Bible study, it means you shared prayer requests and gossip items and then listened to somebody else pray. And then you had a Bible study. But that, that's general, usually it was reversed. But, and then Thursday night was something we called visitation. Uh, we felt like the Jehovah Witnesses shouldn't have all of the fun. So we went out on Thursday night and we would knock on doors is what that was called. Friday night was youth night. Saturday night, many churches, had, or Saturday, many churches had bus ministries in those days. And you would, you would run buses into the poor, poor neighborhoods, quite frankly. And you'd go out all Saturday morning and do that. It was busy. That was our community. So the idea of serving the Lord was something that was kind of like built into our culture. Now, some of you who grew up and you never went to church think, whoa, talk about, wow, that's a lot of commitment. But, but the reality is, this was how we were wired. This was, this was our availability. This was our, our, our mission and, and, and so on. So what, as I grew up, I always had the notion that part of the Christian life, part of the Christian walk was not simply receiving, but it was also giving. It was not saying, I'm here, feed me, but rather, how can I help? How can I teach? How can I move somebody uh, further along in their spiritual life? That was just part of our mission because I believe that's discipleship. And, and, and I think in some ways, as our culture has changed over the last 30, 40, 50 years, we've kind of lost that sense that you and I have a mission to accomplish. And church is not just simply to belong or to receive but it is also to serve and to share. So among the other things that we always did is every, every summer we went to Bible camp and we would load up one of the rickety old school buses, pray over it, anoint it with oil and hope that it would get out of the parking lot. But we would head to Bible camp. For us in mid-Missouri, we went to a place in Tennessee. It seemed like the other end of the planet. I mean, and it took us about 12 hours to get there. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a ranch. It was called the Bill Rice Ranch. It was the fundamentalist mecca for teenagers. I'm not going to, to, to embarrass anybody, but there's actually somebody who's a very faithful part of this church who used to work there. I won't tell you his name, but his initials are Troy Pugh. And, and Troy was a cowboy at that ranch at one time. Uh, I think he was after I was there because... Unfortunately, I'm a little older than he is, but, but he used to work at that. Ironically, the Lord has brought our paths together. But it was a fundamental Bible preaching, hard nose, hard shell, real strict Bible camp, and we loved it. We just had a great time. But on Thursday night, there was always this one sermon that they would preach that was kind of a call-to-action sermon. And we knew it was going to be that all week long, and we anticipated it. And they would bring in a pastor to, to speak or an evangelist or somebody who was good with youth. And one night I went in there when I was 14 years old, and a guy by the name of Fred Brown was there. Fred was an evangelist out of Chattanooga, Tennessee, and he was older than dirt. And I got to tell you, whenever we all walked in, it's like, oh, they got an old guy up there. And we were a little disappointed, but let me tell you, and I like to think I kind of 
I kind of shadow him. But that guy was full of energy. That guy loved kids. That guy loved the word of God. And I'm telling you, when he walked up in there, and he was a cranky looking old guy. Again, please don't make any comparisons. But he, he, he looked a little hard. But as the word flowed out of him, God reached down and grabbed, grabbed hold of my heart. And I'll never forget it. And it's been, it's been coming on 50 years now since this happened. But he preached on Romans chapter 12, verses 1, two, one and 2. Committing your bodies a living sacrifice, saying to God, yes, here am I. Send me, use me, whatever you want to do with me. And as a 14-year-old kid, I made a covenant with God that night. And it was as clear to me as when I would get married later or hold my first child. It was a clear moment for me in which I said, Lord, however, wherever, whenever, to what extent you want to use me, the answer is yes. That's basically all I said. However, whenever, wherever, to what extent, full-time, part-time, Sunday school teacher, deacon, pastor, missionary, whatever it is, to, 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 if you call me, I'm just declaring it right now. The answer is yes. And that was it. Didn't get, didn't get struck by lightning. Didn't fall down on the floor. Didn't have any some kind of weird spiritual experience. But I remembered what I said to God that night. You know, it was interesting, and I didn't even really aware of it at the time, but aware of it at the time. And again, you have to understand, different age, different time. You know, we, we close school here uh, uh, whenever, a, you know, a stick falls in your yard because we don't want anybody to get hurt. Uh, in my day, literally, there were 16-year-olds driving school buses. I, I know, that freaks you out, but, but I was one of them. I, I drove one of the church buses at 16 years old. I know how to double clutch. It was a five-speed. I mean, I know the whole thing, and I was doing that. So when they said, Dan, would you drive a school bus? You know what my answer was? Yeah, sure. If, you think, if you're stupid enough to ask me, I'm stupid enough to say yes. All right? And by the way, I taught a, a Sunday school class of fourth grade boys. Um, and we did not have all the policies and procedures we've got here right now. Uh, I'd have 30 kids in my class all by myself at 15, 16, 17 years of age teaching Sunday school. I didn't know any better. But I do know this, that at one time in a, in a, in a shelter, in a, in a big old metal barn outside of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, while God used a, a cranky old evangelist by the name of Fred Brown, I had said to the Lord, if you ask me, I'll say yes. I went off to college and became a school teacher, wanted to do that. I thought, well, maybe I could be a youth pastor part-time. I'm from tiny churches. They didn't have full-time staff. And so, and so I said, maybe I could be a youth pastor, but i got to earn a living, so I'm going to be a school teacher. And, and, and I kind of prepared for that. Ended up moving to Florida, Palm Beach, Florida, weird place to be if you're from the hills of Missouri, and, and ended up there. And, you know, the first thing I know, they asked me, hey, hey, you know, can you help in this area? Can you help in that area? I was in a youth group with a guy by the name of Danny Whitney. Uh, I was in, in a young, young, young singles department. Y'all know Danny, right? Yeah, you do. The cable guy. That's Danny Whitney. All right? I went to youth or young, young adults with the cable guy. He was in my church. And, and uh, I did not find him even remotely amusing. I, I just got to tell you, I didn't think he was funny. In uh, fact, I found him very irritating. Um, and so I said, I don't want to be in this. I don't want to be in this singles adult with, you know, some guy who thinks he's going to be a comedian. Yeah, right. Um, I wish I'd played that a little better, quite frankly. But, but uh, yeah, you know. And, and I, so I said, I went and I said, can got something I can do? And they said, yeah, do you think you could teach fourth grade boys Sunday school? And I said, 
think I can. I've been doing it. All right? So that's what, that's what I did. And next thing I know, I meet this beautiful blonde. I get married. Three weeks after I get married, the pastor calls me and he says, we want you to do the young couples class. Young couples class. I've been married three weeks. People in the class are older than my parents. Why in the world would you want me to do that? But I had said to the Lord, however, whenever, to what extent, if you say, serve me, I'll say yes. So I said yes. And then three years after that, it was a three, four years, four years, no, five. I got a call or a knock on my door, opened the door, and there was a team of deacons. And they said, Dan, you're 29, we get it, but you've been teaching an adult Sunday school class, and we, we know you love the people of this church, and we kind of need a pastor. Would you be willing to be our pastor? And at 29, I became a pastor. I would love to tell you that God wrote something on the wall. I would love to tell you that, that, that something happened that, that just, boom. I'd love to tell you that a chime just appeared out of nowhere and called us all to the mission field. I, I, you know, I'd love to tell you that something spectacular happened like that. I don't know, but 12 people just surrendered to Africa just now. But it came right down to this. There are going to come times in your life where God is going to give you a challenge. You're going to read the word. You're going to be in prayer. You're going to hear a message. You're going to be in a conversation. You're going to be laying in your bed at night wondering why you can't sleep. And you're going to have an encounter with God. And you're going to have a choice to make. What is your answer going to be? Is it going to be, here am I, Lord. <laughs> I'm a mess. I don't know that I'm particularly qualified. I'm kind of young. I'm kind of old. I don't have a lot of training. But yes, send me. Send me. And that prayer of submission, that prayer of obedience, that response when we communicate to God, I'm yours, Lord, is something that every believer needs to be prepared to give. And that's what we read this morning. And I want us to look back at Isaiah chapter 6. You know, I, I love, by the way, the idea that, that God begins this intimate dialogue in this majestic setting with Isaiah by asking questions. And, and, and sometimes you want to have some time, something fun. Google, use AI, whatever you want to do, but go through and say, give me all the questions that God asks in the Bible. And then do give me all the questions that Jesus asks in the Bible. And you're going to get page after page after page after page after question. 135 different questions Jesus asked. Jesus was always asking questions. And, it, and, and, and by the way, I, I think you know this, but God, Jesus, does not ask questions because he does not know the answers. Right? You, you, you know that. He's omniscient. So the apparent question after that is, so, so what's up with the questions, God? <laughs> Why are you asking these questions if you're omniscient, if you know everything, and if, in fact, you see all things at all times, you even know the answer that I'm about to give. What's with the questions, God? And the questions are so that we will put ourselves in alignment with what God wants us to do. And in the way he has designed us, that alignment 
is something that happens in union with him. It reinforces it, it nails it down, it prepares the way. So when God asks us a question, he's wanting to teach us to do, to do something. He wants us to teach us to know something. He wants us to prepare us to attempt something. But God has an agenda when he's asking us questions. He's not just postulating. He's not just saying, hmm, I've never really thought this through. Let me think it through and I'll just engage you. No, God is preparing the way for something. And so when we see this, this passage and, 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 and God in this moment of tremendous majesty is looking at this, this young man who's standing before him and he, he's, he's, he's saying, who am I going to send? Who will go for us? Who's going to step up to the plate? Who's going to work for me? He knew the answer to that. He knew that he could have commanded the stones to do what he was just putting out in front of Isaiah if he'd wanted to. But this question was also an invitation to Isaiah. Isaiah, are you willing at this moment to respond to the God of the universe and his will for your life? Are you in this moment ready to empty yourself, forget your agenda, to yield, to obey, to open your arms, to risk something? Are you willing to do that in this moment? God asks us questions to force us to search within ourselves for the correct answer, the correct response, for the correct truth, and then to align ourselves so that we can be where God has designed us to be. So you've got Isaiah. And if you study the context of the story, and, and I wish I had time to unfold all of this, but I, I don't, but when you prepare a message, you know, you've got to look for the context. The, principles of hermeneutics and studying scriptures, to whom was it written, when was it written, why was it written, where was it written, and all these different questions and, and so forth. And so, you know, you need to do some, a, little, a little bit of historical context so you don't rip something out and try to apply it to moder modernity and, and then reach an a inappropriate conclusion. Uzziah was, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Isaiah was rattled at this point in his life. He was a young guy. He was really just getting started. And there had been a good king around and somebody he loved and respected and admired whose name was Uzziah. And then Uzziah died. And while he had been experiencing these prophetic, more than impulses, but directions from God already, he knew this was a turning point. This was a big moment. And so God overtook him. Now, for Isaiah, I want you to understand, unlike Dan Burrell, and there's probably a whole lot of other differences between me and Isaiah, God chose in that moment to do something spectacularly supernatural in his life. However, I would also say this. Isaiah couldn't pick up a good old ESV and scroll through the pages. All right? That wasn't there then. We were too early in the story. And in those days, God was speaking directly to men and to nations, and God often spoke to nations through men. They were called prophets, and Isaiah was to be a prophet. Isaiah had this special anointing, this special calling from God, where he spoke for God, 
He channeled God's will that the king should hear and that the people should respond. Thus saith the Lord. Now you've got to understand, this, <laughs> this was a dangerous calling. If you go, in, if you go into the book of Hebrews, uh, where Paul's uh, talking about, about a, lo- a lot of the, um, and I know some people don't think it was Paul, but anyway, the, you know, some of the consequences of being a prophet, oh, they weren't, they weren't good. Many prophets lost their lives in obedience to their vocation. In fact, tradition says that Isaiah was eventually, four kings later, sawn in two. I've got to tell you, of all the ways to be executed, that's definitely not on my list of, oh, I'll try that one, all right? That, I mean, that, that, that's what, and, and in Hebrews we see that some were sawn in two, and tradition has that that was Isaiah. Some were stoned, some were hanged, some were crucified, some were, some were beaten to death, some, some were starved. I mean, all kinds of things happen, but generally speaking, when you look up to a king and you dare defy him, particularly in those days, not a good career move. Not, not a healthy choice there. The kings did not like to be challenged, and the people did not like to be preached at. And so these guys weren't popular. In fact, we know, you look at John the Baptist as, as, as one who is a, a, a prophet as well, but, you know, they lived in caves. They wore, they wore goat skins. They ate what they could forage. When God called Isaiah, you understand, he was calling him to a difficult life. But so Isaiah... He's in this moment of mourning. He's in his youth. He's confused. He's lacking definity in his direction. And the next thing you know, he has this vision. And he saw the Lord, high and exalted, seating, seated on a throne. Now, by the way, this is a very, very unusual scene because very, very few people got even the tiniest glimpse of God. But Isaiah was about to embark on a very, very important mission to Israel. He loved his people. He's a real patriotic guy, but he loved God above all else. And so in this moment of vision, whether it's like a trance or a dream, we don't know, but we know that he saw the Lord and he had no question about where he was or what he was looking at. He was high. He was lifted up. He was on a throne. The train of his robe filled the entire temple. There was majestic attire going on. There were, there, there were the garments of royalty unlike ever seen by human eyes. Above him were seraphim. One of the only times in Scripture we see this angelic creature described, a special creature who God designed solely to worship him. Each of them had six wings. This is where we get the notion, by the way, that angels have wings from here. And they had six wings. And with two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two wings they fly. You say, whoa, somebody was not observing dry January. What in the world? What are we talking about here? This is more like an hallucination than it is reality. But no, you see, there are things that our minds have not conceived, our eyes have not seen, our ears have not heard that exist because God is God. And we always have to be mindful of that. If you think you've got it all figured out, we don't even have the tiniest clue. And so what were these guys doing, these seraphim? Two of the wings are flying, two had their faces covered, two had their feet covered, but they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. There's indication that they were taking turns. One with holy, 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 like you guys were doing in the first song. He is holy, he is holy. It was like holy, holy, 
holy. And the place was dead quiet except for the sound of the seraphim's wings and the expressions of worship. But there was a resonance to the voices. There was, a, there, there, was, there, there was something going on that was so significant, so unique, that it almost caused a rumbling, a trembling of the room where the very floors were shaking, the pillars were shaking as the declarations of holy emitted from these creatures resonated and echoed throughout this chamber whereupon the God of the universe sat in full glory and full authority. And at the sound of their voices, Isaiah fell apart. He fell apart. And his response and I want you to note it, was of complete brokenness. Woe to me. I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. But my eyes, I see the glory of God right now. And it wasted him. It wasted him. Can I just pause here? I know I keep doing this, but i got to do it. Anytime you see coming into face-to-face or in the presence of God, notice the response of the creation before the Creator. It is indescribably, inexplicably filled with humility and brokenness and a horror of our condition and of a unflinching yielding. You know, the scripture says, there's coming a day when at the very name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. And yet, many of us in this generation, in this time, have a lackadaisical, disrespectful, even rebellious attitude toward God that drips off of, drips off of us with an arrogance and a disrespect that I got to think God finds disgusting and appalling. Over and over, and, I heard, and I've heard it from people I truly respect, from guys that I consider far greater theologians than me, and they'll say things like, it's all right to get mad at God. It's all right to tell God off. I even had, I heard one guy who was preaching one day, he said, I even cussed at God. And everybody went, oh, really? Well, 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 maybe I can do that too. I want you to understand something. If you and I saw God face to face, we wouldn't be cussing and we wouldn't be cocky and we wouldn't be angry and we wouldn't be telling God off and we wouldn't be thinking about ourselves at all except, oh boy, am I a mess. And I think part of our cultural problems is that we don't respect God the way that we should. We don't see him high and lifted up. We see him as someone there to serve us rather than for us to serve him. We see him as optional. We see him as occasionally inconvenient. We see him as a sugar daddy who's there to give us all our needs. And and if we don't get them, We stomp our feet and we tell him off. But I want you to even consider that. 
Because you know what? There have been people that have been disrespectful toward God and gotten away with it. Just like there have been people in your life who have been disrespectful with you and gotten away with it. But who are they usually? Toddlers, aren't they? Oh, my kids were great at this. Before my kids could even speak clear sentences, they would try to tell me off every once in a while. Here, eat this. I don't know what they said, but they communicated quite clearly at that moment. You know, and there were some times that I would say to my wife, what's up with this? Or, or, oh, is that the most adorable thing you've ever seen? There are the times I picked it up and said, you're going to sit here until you eat it. You got that. But that wasn't one of my finer fathering moments, but you know, my response varied, but it was always because the kid was acting like a, um, a, a kid. I believe this, as we grow in our knowledge of the Lord, as we grow in our knowledge of the Word of God, that our attitude toward God becomes more reverential, more deferent, more respectful, more obedient, because we start seeing God for who He really is. And that ought to make a difference in our response. So that when we pray in response to whatever it is He's asking us, that we're not praying as children, but that we're praying as prophets. So that we stand before him and said, here am I, Lord, use me. Not, well, you know what? I really had bigger plans for my life. I really wanted to live on the lake and I really wanted to drive a nicer car. No, 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 no. We're not in that position. I got a friend. I won't tell you who he is, but, but he, he, he's the president of a major corporation. I mean, and a big one, a big one. He's well known. And he was in my church in Florida. My wife grew up with him. He's a great, he's a great guy. But it's really, really interesting I know where he's at politically. I, I, I know, I, I know, you know, I mean, we're friends. I, I, I know a lot about him. But he's had Democrat presidents and Republican presidents call him to the White House for consultations. He's been asked to serve on councils for the president by liberal administrations and conservative administrations. He has served governors that were a different political persuasion than, than he is in his home state. And his response is always, I'm here to serve. You know, because when people in authority ask you to serve, what do you generally do? You say, yes, Lord. <laughs> yes, governor. Yes, president. Yes, boss. Yes, honey. <laughs> but when you see someone with respect, and by the way, you love them, or you want them to be successful, or they do have authority in your life, what do you do? Your natural inclination is not, well, I just don't think this is the right thing to be asking me. No, you say, yes, how can I serve you? And when we look at this passage, this is where he ended up doing. So can you imagine, what's the most majestic place you've ever been in? Just think about it in your head. You know, what, is it something man-made? Was it the Vatican? I'm telling you, you've been there, amazing. What, what Was it Congress? A beautiful place. Westminster Cathedral, perhaps. The Biltmore? Versailles? Or what about if it was spectacular, it was natural? Maybe it was Yosemite or Victoria Falls or, 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 or you know, the Grand Canyon. But think of this. You're in this place that just by its very creation is absolutely the most spectacular place you've ever been. And there, in that place, is God. And he's looking at you. And he's saying, I've got a will for your life. And he's got a will for your life, too. In mine. If you think you're here by some kind of fluke, 
you don't understand God. God has a plan for your life. A plan so great, so significant, so important that he was willing to let his son die for it. And this ought not be lost on us. So Isaiah, he's standing before God, and God looks at him and he says, will you serve me? I've got a need. I need somebody to go. Who's going to go? And Isaiah said, yeah, Lord, anywhere, anytime, any place, to whatever extent, send me. And with that prayer, he was ready to shake the very character and nature and direction of the nation of Israel and the kings who would lead it. In this moment of sensory overload, there was clarity. Can you imagine? He probably couldn't take it in all at once. There was the sound of seraphim wings and sacred chanting. The sight of God and his majesty and the angels and the room. The smell of sacred incense and the smoke that would make the coals hot. The thickness of the celestial atmosphere had to be unreal. Then the taste of the purifying fire as the seraphim took tongs, picked up a coal and placed it to his lips and said, your sins have been atoned for. And then he collapsed. Now I want you to understand and see this and then we're going to give some applications. We aren't ready to serve until God has reconciled us with him. Any service we have apart from that is meaningless. It's worthless. But until that moment, when we're declared righteous before God, our service is meaningless. It was at that moment Isaiah was prepared to serve, and it's at the moment of salvation you and I have been called and prepared to serve. When you trust Christ as your Savior, you need to Expect for what? Because God has a plan for your life, and it begins with salvation. That moment when we realize we cannot save ourselves and that we must trust him for eternal life. And that the price that Jesus paid when he shed his blood for us was sufficient to purify us, body, soul, and spirit to be used by God for his glory and for our good. This morning, if you think that coming to church makes you holy, it doesn't. If you think that joining Life Fellowship Church is what makes you a Christian, it doesn't. Even if you think that being baptized or confirmed or committing some kind of act of contrition, taking communion is what it takes, there is that moment where reconciliation occurs when God, when God cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And it begins with the prayer of confession that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's that moment. Then from there, then from there, hang on. God's got something for you to do. So there was the sight He looked around. 
And he saw and came to the realization of where he was and what a mess he was. Then there was the insight. He looked inside and he said, I am undone. I'm ruined. I'm filthy. And he got reconciled. From the sight to the insight, then there was the vision. He looked ahead. And God said, I need someone to go. Who's going to go? Who's going to speak truth to the king? Who's going to lead the nation to righteousness? Who's going to confront sin? And Isaiah said, I'm your guy. I'm your guy. Don't know what that's going to look like right now. He had no idea he's going to get sawn in two or whatever happened to him. He had no idea he was going to spend a lot of his nights running in terror from those who would kill him. He just knew this. The king had spoken. The president had called. The ambassadorship was open. And now he needed to obey. And in faith, he did. And that's vision. So what do we do when we pray the prayer of obedience? What do we need to know? Here's the first thing. Our relationship with God begins with his call to repentance. And I want to say to you, when we talk about prayer, we begin with the assumption that the most important prayer is the first prayer, and that is the prayer of repentance, where we trust Christ as our Lord and Savior. Lord, forgive me and take me to heaven when I die. If it feels like you're working hard and not getting any closer to God, then that's part of the problem. It's never about your works and how hard and how diligent and how careful you are. It's always about what God has already done for you. Are you willing to accept that as sufficient? And when you're at that moment and you, here my Lord, send me. I am ruined, I am broken, I am undone. I can't do it myself, Lord, I need you. At that moment, you are positioned for salvation. And if you say, Dan, I've got a question about this, or I never saw it that way before, I've not done that. Do not go and get in your car before you deal with that. Please, please. (laughs) Go see Ben, come see me, go see one of the pastors, go to the prayer room, Walk, talk to somebody that has a white lanyard and red letters on it out there that asks, can I pray for you? And tell them, I need to know for sure I'm going to heaven. That's all you got to do. I need to know for sure how I go to heaven. And we'll have someone sit with you and pray with you, answer your questions, come over to the office for an appointment. We'll meet you for coffee. We'll, we'd love to share that with you. But make no mistake, we do not naturally seek after God. We're drawn by his invitation. He is saying today, who will receive? Who will accept me? Who will trust me? No one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. John chapter 6, Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but I've called sinners to repentance. If you think you're righteous, you're not, (laughs) that's not you, okay? He's calling sinners to repentance. That's all of us. Number two, when we see ourselves and we see God correctly, we're going to cry out in obedience. If you're fighting God, if you're resisting God, if you're rebelling against God, if you're running from God, I just want you to understand something. You don't see God correctly. And you don't see your condition correctly. If you knew how horrible hell was and how good God is, if you knew how much he loved you and how little hope there is apart from him, your response would be completely different. When we see ourselves like Isaiah saw ourselves, Damned and doomed and without hope and a filthy mess. Only response we have is to cry out in obedience. Don't be casual with God. 
Don't think you can get mad at God and tell him off and somehow that's noble. If we saw God for who he really is, it would transform our lives, our homes, our churches, and our communities. Number three, God's call to us is both general and specific, and we need to be ready to respond in each circumstance in the affirmative. We need to be willing to say yes. There are general calls and there are specific calls. In general, God calls us out through his creation. How can you look at a sunset or a, or a canyon or a mountain? How can you look at these things that he has created and say, oh, that was an interesting fluke. That was an interesting mistake or circumstance or coincidence. He calls out through his word. When you read his word, and hopefully you are, he speaks to you through his word. He calls out to us through the gospel. The gospel was given, the good news, so that we could be reconciled and have hope. He calls out to us through his spirit. It's that part of you that lives within that you can't really describe or, or, or write out in, in definitive, but you know, you know when God's speaking to you. You hear his voice as you read his word. He's saying, yeah, Dan, that's for you, man. Are you paying attention here? Or Dan, man, this person needs a phone call. Or Dan, have you considered this thing you're doing in your life? It's that Holy Spirit that's taking his word and he's activating it for our good and God's glory. None of us possess excuse before God to remain silent. We have no excuse to be silent before the majesty of God. And prayer is our reply to his questions, to his challenges, to his assignments, to his will. Our prayers and our obedient response is indicative that we are surrendering to his authority and seeking to be in alignment with his call. God calls us to a lot of things. He calls us to love him and to love others, to worship him, to serve, to be baptized, to keep his commandments, to seek him first, to believe, to read and study and learn his word, to be part of a local church. He calls us to forgive. He calls us to be thankful. He calls us to flee sin and youthful lusts and fornication. He calls us to be holy. He calls us to turn the other cheek. He calls us to go the extra mile. He calls us to fast. He calls us to live the golden rule. He calls us to be separate from the world. He calls us to occupy this world. He calls us to be ambassadors. He causes us he calls us to pray. He calls us to tithe. He calls us to give. He calls us to rejoice. He calls us to care for the widows and the orphans. He calls us to mind our tongues. He calls us to avoid gossip and idle talk. He calls us to share the gospel. We can go through scripture and look at call after call after call. In the general sense, these are our opportunities to be like him. At the same time that there are those general calls, there are specific calls, unique calls, calls for you and calls for me calls to serve as an elder or to disciple someone, calls to go into ministry, to go on a mission field, to start an outreach, to talk to your neighbor, to bless someone, to give generously, to see a need and meet that need yourself, not wait for somebody else to do it. To reach out to someone individually, someone that's in your life that's in no other person's life. But you are in a unique position because of the place you work or the neighborhood you live or because of, of your reputation or where you went to school or some reason. But you are in a unique position to reach out to somebody individually and God's saying, yeah, you, yeah, you. To continue irrationally when others would say, why don't you just quit? To say, no, I'm not quitting. To invest in someone or something uniquely, to give your time, your talent, your treasure, to something that God has laid upon your heart for you, for you 
to accomplish. To wait patiently. To risk exceptionally. To abandon something completely. In other words, to do something that others look at you and say, that's nuts. And you say, no, it's not nuts, it's God. He's led me here. To trust him fully. To attempt something specifically. Not all of us are called to be Isaiah's, but we're all called to obey. So what is it that God wants you to do? And by the way, I can't tell you. But it may be that right here in this moment, you are thinking about it in your mind's eye. Because the Lord's already been plowing the dirt for you on this. And he wants you to do it. Number four, some are called to exceptional things, and God will equip you to obey them. Some are called to exceptional things, and God will equip you for obedience. I'd like, for you to, I'd like to challenge you to pray to the Lord that you, God will call you to do something exceptional, something that other people may not do. I don't know what it might be, but I believe that the Lord will reveal it to you. I believe that many of us have grown quite comfortable with the minimalist approach to how we serve God, whether or not we surrender to Him. Well, if it's not inconvenient, if it doesn't mess up my other plans, if it doesn't require money, if it doesn't require time, if it doesn't require, the, oh, I might get embarrassed or fail, what is it that God really wants you to do that's exceptional that you're willing to say, here, my Lord, send me? Many of us just don't want God messing with our agenda. That's the problem. I got plans, God. Please, don't you understand how important my plans are? My challenge to you would be to pray something audacious from God for you to do that he would use you to perform or to change you or to direct you exceptionally. Send you somewhere. Enable you to do, enable you to do something extraordinary. To give you an opportunity bigger than you can handle on your own. To commit to something fully, not minimally. That you lose something if you fail. That you risk something in saying yes. To accomplish something for his glory that is beyond your capacity, but which will glorify God as he meets the need to get it accomplished. That's what I'm asking you to pray for. And the last thing is this. The prayerful cry of obedience is ours to make, and the results are God's to dictate. I want you to notice something as we leave this passage. If we were to go on and read the passage, God is giving Isaiah a message to deliver that he knows in advance is going to be rejected. Isaiah spent his life beating his head against a wall. By man's account, Isaiah was a failure. His message was not received. Israel did not repent. The kings hated him, and eventually he was martyred. But you understand this? The powerful cry of obedience, when we say yes, means simply that God will handle the results. God will handle the outcomes. And the outcome may not be exactly what you thought they would be, but that's okay because you only had to obey. Your life is not a success or a failure based on measurable outcomes that are designed for mass producing in a book. It is successful, they are successful, based on whether we radically obeyed and were completely faithful. That's what God asks of us. For Isaiah, it was simply to obey. So, what is God calling you to do that needs a prayer of obedience? In what area of your life are you currently disobeying his clear direction and looking at him in silence or even rebellion, daring him to do something in response to your refusal? 
Are you ready to say, yes, Lord, (laughs) I'm a mess, but yes, Lord. Oh, I'm ruined, but yes, Lord, send me. What is it that might be preventing you from praying the prayer of obedience? Could it be fear? Could it be that you love something else more? Could it be apathy, the dangerous, most dangerous of all emotions? You just don't care. Could it be rebellion? Could it be selfishness? Could it be because of how you view God or even how you view yourself? Could it be because you don't hear his voice at all? Because you've never prayed the prayer of repentance. I don't know, it's kind of a heavy sermon, isn't it? But you know, obedience is essential. It's essential to completing God's plan in our life. So why don't we quit playing games? Why don't we step up to the plate? Why don't we see God for who he is and see ourselves in the mess we are? An absolute humility and an absolute obedience. We say, here am I, Lord. Send me. I believe if we do that as a result of these 21 days, that 2024 will be a day of, or a year of tremendous impact. That every man, woman, boy, and girl in Lake Norman and beyond becomes more than ideal, but it becomes a reality as we give them an opportunity to hear and respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. That we will glorify God by living in community, investing in growth, finding our purpose, and engaging in the Great Commission. That we will indeed pursue at all costs This life that God has given for us that's both abundant and victorious. As we say, here am I, Lord. Send me. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Are you ready for the invitation? Are you ready for the moment? When you see God high and lifted up, you hear the sound of seraphim wings, you you smell the the coals and the, the heaviness of the atmosphere. And you look at yourself and you say, oh, what a mess I am. But God, but God. And now's that moment. Now's that time. So will you pray and trust Christ as your Savior? If you need to do that, do that today. Come see me. Come see Ben. Step out into the lobby. Talk to somebody out there. Go to the guest desk. We would love to share with you the good news of Jesus. Or maybe just simply say, Dan, I don't know who told you what God's been dealing with in my life. I don't know. Don't know your story, but the Holy Spirit does, and he'll speak to you far better than I ever could. That question only remains as will you say, here my Lord, send me. Let's do that together today and this week. Let's nail it down. Let's say it out loud. Let's stand as we pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage of scripture. Help us, Father, to live it out this week that when you call, our prayer is instant. Yes, Lord, I obey. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.